All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So what did we learn today? We talked about artificial intelligence for about an hour during this 23rd day of January, talking about students using it to write papers for them. And one professor in Texas says that kids should use artificial intelligence because their role as a writer is to rewrite, to edit, to massage the information they get from that first draft. We had a lot of callers jumping into this and had a wonderful segment talking about artificial intelligence on KDKA. So how do we go about teaching if kids are going to use artificial intelligence to do their classwork? Ah, interesting. As word of students starting to use AI to, for instance, automatically complete term papers or essays starts to spread around campuses, lecturers are now really having to rethink exactly how they should teach their pupils to write. How do we get them to do it a little bit differently, and how do we go about evaluating it? Writing is a difficult task. This is from the Register. Writing is a difficult task to do well. The best novelists and poets write furiously, dedicating their lives to mastering their craft. The creative process of stringing together words to communicate thoughts is often viewed as something complex, mysterious, unmistakably human. No wonder people are fascinated by machines that can write as well. Unlike humans, language models don't procrastinate and create content instantly with a little bit of guidance. All you need to do is type a short description or prompt instructing the model on what it needs to produce, and it will generate the text output in seconds. So it should come as no surprise that students are now beginning to use these tools to complete their schoolwork. Students, the perfect users, they often need to write and oftentimes in large volume. They are internet savvy. There are a lot of AI writing products out there to choose from. They're easy to use. They're pretty inexpensive as well. And of course, the lure of new users with free trials promising to make them better writers as well. Monthly subscriptions for the most popular platform, which is Jasper, start at 40 bucks a month. Four zero, 40 bucks a month will generate 35,000 words for you. There are others out there, Write Sonic or Pseudo Write. They're cheaper at just 10 bucks a month. You'll get 30,000 words. Students who think that they can use these products and get away with doing zero work are likely to be disappointed. However, there is Chat GPT. Although AI can generate text with perfect spelling, great grammar, and syntax, the content is oftentimes not as good beyond just a few paragraphs. The writing becomes less coherent over time, no logical train of thought to follow, and it would make sense because you're not necessarily thinking through these things, right? Language models fail to get their facts right, meaning quotes, dates, ideas are oftentimes false, And students are going to have to inspect the writing very closely and correct mistakes in order for their work to be convincing. 
One professor says this, Scott Graham, who is in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas in Austin, asked his pupils to write a 2,200-word essay about a campus-wide issue and wanted them to use AI. He encouraged them to use it. Students were free to lightly edit and format their work with the only rule being that most of the essay had to be automatically generated by software. That's the assignment, okay? Now, in an opinion article that was in uh, Inside Higher Education, Graham said the AI-assisted essays were, quote, not good, end quote, noting that the best of the bunch would have earned a C or a C-. minus. To score higher, students would have had to rewrite more of the essay using their own words or uh, improve it, or they'd have to craft increasingly narrower and more specific prompts in order to get back more useful content. So they'd need to know how to use it better. You're not going to be able to, quote, push a button and submit a short prompt and generate a ready-to-go essay, is what he tells the register. The limits of machine-written text forces humans to carefully read and edit copy. Some people may consider using these tools as cheating, but Graham believes that they can help people get better at writing. I think if students can do well with AI writing, it's not actually all that different from them doing well with their own writing. The main skills I teach and assess mostly happen after the initial draft. I think that's where people become really talented writers. It's in the revision and the editing process. I'm so optimistic about AI because I think that it will provide a framework for us to be able to teach that revision and editing better. So what do you think? What do you think of this? AI, artificial intelligence, using it in classwork. Now, there are kids. And I will tell you, my mother was an English professor, 29 years at Slippery Rock University. And she took great pride in being incredibly well-read. She just loved, and she would often be reading two or three books at a time. Loved, loved, loved to read. So if you thought that you were going to pull a fast one on her by something, by spouting something from some book, you better be really, really careful because chances were she's already read it, right? So if you think you're going to tell this English professor all about this book, blah, 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 you probably have another thing coming. And if nothing else, what you have coming is going to be a very thoughtful and difficult question that you're going to have to answer either in person in class or in her office afterwards about where you came up with this, right? So if you think that you're just going to go to cliff notes and you're going to regurgitate what the cliff notes say, or if you're going to plagiarize from somebody else who wrote such an essay, you had another thing coming. And she wasn't the only one. Many, many, many teachers the same way. That they have seen these dog and pony shows before. It's not their first rodeo. You know, I had one person say to me, you know, I may have been born yesterday, but it was before lunchtime. And it's just sort of the way you can, you can think about these things. So the question I have for you is this. Is it good for young people to learn how to use AI? Like Professor Graham was saying at Texas. Let's use it because let's be completely honest. It's not going anywhere. It's going to be there. And what's our job to do? Our job is to teach students how to use tools to become better writers. You go to the library because it is what? A place of resource, a place where you can get tools, a place where you can get more information. Does this AI allow you to assimilate some of that information the same way maybe you would have by doing a literature search? Or do you come down on the other side and say, no, wait a second, you need to deal with the hardest thing about writing, which is looking at a blank 
document on your screen and figure out how to make it into something. How many times have we been faced with that challenge? You're writing a eulogy that you're going to deliver at someone's funeral. What do I say? You have to get up and you have to give uh, a speech about a review of somebody's work at work. You have to give a talk at Rotary Club. Where do you begin? That's hard. It's really hard. And if you never learned how to start with a blank document and turn it into something, is it a good idea if you don't learn that when you are in high school and or college? So where do you come down on this? Should kids learn how to use the tool, AI, or should they learn how to write and then we'll deal with AI at another time? Which came first, the AI or the ability to write? Where do you think we go with this? Is it appropriate that it's used in school? Should it be banned from being used in schools? 866-391-1020. 866-391-1020 is that number. So we're talking about artificial intelligence and using it for writing, writing papers, using it for uh, university students doing research and things like that. One professor at Texas thinks that it's brilliant and it needs to be important that the process of learning how to edit, taking what the artificial intelligence spits out and then making it your own, massaging it, changing it, adding things, figuring out what is wrong and making it better. Some students have a lot of trouble sometimes generating that first draft, says the prof. If all the effort goes into getting them to generate that first draft and then they hit the deadline, that's then what we are going to submit. They don't get a chance to revise. They don't get a chance to edit. If we can use those systems to speed write the first draft, it might be really helpful. I, I see the point. I, I, I see where he's coming from. Yet at the same time, I also say, how are you going to know how to revise and edit and change things if you're not sure how to write in the first place? Correct? You have to be able to write and craft and formulate your thoughts and put them down cohesively to even change something else to have your thoughts come down in a cohesive, logical fashion. So I see his point, but I think the reasoning is a little bit circuitous. Now, I also think that there are going to be people who look at this and say, well, well come on, Rick, artificial intelligence, how is that any different than, let's look at, uh, let's say, back in the 1970s and the 1980s, what we used as we were writing was a typewriter. And then people had to learn how to type. And did they have to really know how to type as well if they were going to be using a word processor? Meaning, you know, if you don't really have that skill set because you can hit the backspace key and you can correct it and nobody knows that you made a mistake, do you really learn to type? You're swimming. You're teaching your child how to swim. You put those water wings on, right, those floaties on their arms, and then you put them in the pool that sort of allows them to stay on top of the water as they learn the strokes, as they don't feel like they're getting water in their face and in their eyes and in their mouth and feeling like they're not able to swim and they get scared and don't react as well. Is that cheating? Right? Is using a word processor to learn to type different than using a typewriter? Sure it is. Is learning to swim with water wings or a floaty vest or something on different than learning to swim? I think it is, too. Let's go to Chewy. Chewy's joining us from Masontown. Chewy, I haven't heard from you for a while. How are you? 
I'm pretty good, Rick. How you been? I am okay. What do you think of this UI? Is that cheating or is that, hey, that's the way it's going. We need to learn how to use it. Well, you're, you're taking the thinking out of the teaching. Mm. If you can't sit down with a blank piece of paper and write, uh, let's say, a short story or a document or describe something, if you're letting the artificial intelligence do it for you, then you're not learning anything. Yeah, I, I see I see where you're coming from, that that creative portion of it, right, that the idea of what it means and the direction that it's going, you have to figure out, and, and you're creating that, right? It's not just a matter of you're regurgitating something that you learn. You're creating it when you write. Well, absolutely, but you're serving multiple masters here. You know, can you write a correct sentence with your prepositional phrases uh-huh. and can you build that sentence correctly? Uh, your spelling. Are, are you spelling the words correctly? You know, can you build a correct paragraph out of your mind? Yeah. And, and yet they're not teaching that. Yeah, and I mean, Chewy, you know as well as I do that someone's going to say, well, I'd have to learn how to spell. I've got spell check on my phone. I've got spell check on my computer. I've got spell check on my email. I don't have to worry about that. It'll fix it for me. I don't agree, yeah. but I'm saying that's what people are going to say. Oh, oh, I understand what you're saying, but what's wrong with a tablet and a pencil? Nothing. We, we're, <laughs> not, we're, not. Rely, we're relying too much yeah. on this technology. No, I agree. What would happen if if the Internet were to crash? Mm. Then what People do you do? wouldn't be able to function. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very, very, very good point. And we maybe wouldn't be able to have this conversation because our phone system here is probably powered by the Internet, or your cell phone is probably going through a tower that's powered by the Internet, right? We wouldn't have this conversation. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a great point, and I love where you're going about thinking through these things and having to learn the process, regardless of how it ultimately goes. You have to know how to think. Absolutely. Yeah. There's young people out here right now that cannot fill out a check to pay their bills. Correct, because they've never had to do it. Everything is just tap, right? No. Everything is tap the credit card and go. Apple Pay. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they don't know how to write in cursive. They can't read in cursive. Mm. You know, our, our school system is not only failing the kids, but it's failing us as well. Chewy, that's some great stuff. Thank you very much for calling in. Always love to hear from you. So glad that you're out there helping us to, to think through these tough things. Misty in Cannonsburg, you're going to be up next. Right now we're checking on traffic with Paul Alexander. So as we continue talking about artificial intelligence, I want to bring in Misty right now from Cannonsburg. Misty, we're just talking to Chewy a little bit and saying, hey, that the process of looking at a blank piece of paper and and trying to figure out how to craft a sentence and then a paragraph and then a paper and things like that is a is a dying art. Do you agree? Do you, do you feel that's a pretty accurate assessment? I think that it could be if this AI isn't, um, if we don't do some kind of screening. And I'll tell you why. I'm a teacher. Okay. I'm a Pittsburgh public school teacher. I teach high school English. Yeah. And so when a kid turns in a paper, if it looks like, yeah, maybe it's a little beyond his skill level, I'll run it through a Google search. Okay. And it will pick up plagiarizing. The problem with an AI is every time, I've only used that chat GPI. Yeah. Any time that you ask it a question, it generates different answers. So there's no way for me to check for plagiarism if a kid discovers this AI. Yeah. And it will write brilliant. We've tried it. A couple of friends and I sat in, in 
just gave it some questions. And it did a pretty darn good job of coming up with a five-paragraph essay about just about anything you could imagine and with subtleties added. So that was a little frightening. However, on the flip side, I was able to do a multiple-choice final that usually takes me three hours to create in about two minutes. Really? <laughs> yeah. All I asked it to do was to create, and you have to do them ten at a time, ten multiple-choice questions about, and I gave them the topic, and it generated the multiple-choice questions. And then I asked it for an essay question, and it generated the essay questions. And it even gave me reading passages related to the theme that I gave it. Oh, my word. See, I've not and used this a whole lot, but it is, it to me, it's fascinating. I mean, it's really, really, it's intriguing where this is going to go. It is. It is yeah. fascinating. And yeah. I, the Chewy, next time he says to you that our school district is failing us, you call me. <laughs> Misty, you just did. Like you just jumped right yeah. in there. It's awesome. And I sure appreciate it. And, and thank you for teaching and thank you for saving English and the English language. It is thank critically, critically best. important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a Misty. Great day. That's a great call. Thank you. I sure appreciate that. We're going to get to some other calls here on the other side as I uh, see some other people stacking up, and we'll get to them after we check on Melinda's News at 3.30 on KDKA. Also today, Lisa DeFrank Cole, a professor at WVU, where she is part of one of their groups called the Leadership Studies Program, talking to us about the resignation of New Zealand's prime minister and says that she is stepping down. And Lisa tells us that that really is an example of leadership, doesn't have enough in the tank to continue to lead appropriately. So she is going to step down. What can we learn from Jacinda Ardern's resignation? And is that a sign of weakness? or a sign of strength. Take a listen. So can you lead by stepping aside? Can you set an example that other people will look at and say, interesting, maybe the best thing to do right now is to not keep on doing what I'm doing. Is that what's happening in New Zealand? Well, just, uh, Jacinda Ardern, who was the prime minister there, is stepping aside next month, and she has already made that announcement. And we are going to talk to a professor at West Virginia University right now and whether or not this is an example of leadership. And I can't wait to have this conversation with Lisa DeFrank Cole, director and professor of the Leadership Studies Program at WVU. She also has written about women in leadership, a journey toward equity. Lisa, it is great to have you on KDK. How are things in Morgantown? Hi, Rick. They're a little snowy and cold today. How about there? Very similar. Very, very <laughs> similar. And I'm afraid that it's going to be that way for much of the week. But, you know, that's that's where we live. We just uh, we have to buckle down and just get through it, right? It's January. And, yeah, And that's right. We've got a case of the January. So when you heard the news that the prime minister of New Zealand was stepping down, that a woman who was in a very high position, head of state, was stepping down, what was your first thought? Oh, gosh, Rick, I was sad initially because there are so few uh, world leaders who are women. Um, but then when I started reading the rest of the story about her, I was happy like that she had the, I'll call it, uh, audacity to actually step down when we don't see that happening very often. So I think it's a noble act of leadership. 
She went through a lot, and New Zealand went through a lot with the the COVID and the decisions and that she made and things like that. And and their country handled it very differently than other countries in the United in the in the world did. Was she criticized unfairly because of what they did there, or was perhaps it warranted in some cases? You know, I think going through COVID, no matter what country somebody lived in, we were going to see people who were in favor of what she did uh, and people who were against it. And so, you know, I think people had to do the best that they could do at the time with very limited information. And I think she solved the problem. I mean, initially their numbers went down and um, I think she got some positive reviews. It's only been lately that I think um, some of her ratings have gone down. A lot of people can make decisions in the rearview mirror, right? It's very easy to make policy decisions looking backwards as opposed to looking through the windshield as you're driving down the road at 90 miles an hour. There's no question about that. One of the things that Ardern has said is that, you know, she just didn't feel that she had enough in the tank anymore. And I think that, you know, their model in New Zealand is very different than ours is here in the United States, where somebody is going to serve, say, in an executive branch for four years or as a senator for six years or a representative for two years. Theirs if they decide they're going to step down, they can, and there can be an election at any point. Looking at this from a political standpoint, does that make more sense maybe than what we do here, that our leaders are expected to serve for a certain amount of time, regardless of how fit they feel for the job? You know, I wouldn't say that there would be anything wrong with one of our representatives or senators stepping down either. Hmm. I mean, if someone gets to the point in their life where they don't have enough in the tank, as she said, gosh, I would want them to step down. And I don't think there's any rule that says they have to stay there. It just doesn't seem to be common practice. Leadership here seems to be something we hold on to for dear life <laughs> with a battleground mentality, it seems. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a new prototype to see someone say, gosh, I know this job requires a lot and I'm willing to step back from it because I don't think I have, I can't put everything towards it anymore. Lisa DeFrank Cole is joining us, director and professor of the WVU Leadership Studies Program and also an author who has written about women and leadership, too. So is it too early? And I think the answer is probably yes, but I'll ask you, is it too early to know sort of how she will be remembered as to you know her place in history? Yeah, I think, uh, of course, as you said earlier, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think she's done a good job, and I think she's um, been unique in that she was young when she was became prime minister. She had a child while in office, and she's going to get married, I think, soon, as mm-hmm. she was saying with some of her plans to move forward. So I think, yeah, she re- represents something new and different, and she will be remembered, re- remembered for those pieces in particular. One of the things that's fascinating about New Zealand is that if you were to walk up to somebody in Auckland or Wellington or one of the large cities there and say to them, hey, what do you do? Their response might be, well, I love to play pickleball. And you know what? I love to sew. And I really, really am learning how to cook. And one of my favorite new things to do is is cook Szechuan. Their answer is not going to be, well, I'm the CEO of this particular. They're not defined by their work. When you ask Mm. them what they do, it's what are they interested in? What could we learn? What could we as Americans learn from taking that approach? Well, gosh, I think we can learn a lot from both their approach and Jacinda Ardern in particular Mm. um, by stepping down. First, that, you know, we don't have to be so committed to leadership in the the sense that 
that there's never a time to step back from it. I think that is a lesson that she's giving us. But then the people specifically, as you noted, um, gosh, there's time for leisure. <laughs> what a concept for Americans to understand that there's time for leisure. Um, and, and I think we could all do better to have a little more leisure time in our lives. Um, I'm sure you, you deal with it too, right? We're, we're, everybody's like on a hamster wheel. <laughs> Nobody feels like they have enough time. Yeah. But gosh, if we had time for some hobbies and a little rest, I think it might do us all a world of good. So Lisa, what do we do about changing the stigma that if you're stepping down, you failed? If you're walking away before the end of your term, how do we change that? I mean, our leaders, you know, if, if they resign their position, is that automatically something assigned uh, a smudge on their record? They don't get the same gold star as if they had finished it through. And how do we change that notion? Yeah, it takes time to change, right? Culture and gender norms take a long time to change. But I think decisions like the one Ardern made is a step in the right direction. When we see people, she wasn't leaving because there was some black mark on her record. She was leaving, from what we've read so far, because she didn't have enough in the tank. So I think when we have role models um, like her, um, both women and men in the case can say, gosh, if she did it, if Ardern did it, and I'm sure she's going to land on her feet. I mean, that remains to be seen, but I think she's going to land on her feet. Then, then I think it gives us all some permission to say, it's okay for us to step back. And step by step, little bit by bit, we can change the culture in that way. But it takes somebody to actually make that decision first for the rest of us to look up to. Yeah, great discussion today. Lisa, thank you so much for helping us to think through these things and, and give us your expertise on this area of leadership, women in leadership, and also just a, a changing face of leadership as we move forward. We sure appreciate you jumping in here on KDK. Thank you. You're welcome. Nice yeah. to talk to you. Great stuff. Lisa DeFrank Cole with us here from Morgantown, where she is a professor at WVU and teaches and works with the WVU Leadership Studies Program there and also does extensive writing on women and leadership, too. And on Mondays at 5.30, we always do Rick's Reading List, and I love this one. It's called Devil in the White City, a story that is written about, a factual story, about what happened in and around the World's Fair in Chicago. If you know your history, you know that's where George Ferris introduced the very first Ferris wheel, but it also was a time when there were some sinister things going on in the underbelly of Chicago, including a sociopathic killer who was lurking in the midst of all this opulence of the World's Fair. Devil in the White City by Eric Larson is this week's reading list submission. Rick's reading list is about a book that is called Devil in the White City. It's written by Eric Larson, who has written at least four bestsellers, sold more than five and a half million copies. This is actually a book that was written back in 2003. And to read, I'm just going to read you a little bit from the uh, from the back cover. Bringing Chicago circa 1893 to vivid life, Eric Larson's spellbinding bestseller intertwines the true tale of two men, the brilliant architect behind the legendary 1893 World's Fair, striving to secure America's place in the world, and the cunning serial killer who used the fair to lure his victims to their death. Combining meticulous research with nail-biting storytelling, Larson has crafted a narrative with all the wonder of newly discovered history and the thrills of the best fiction. It is a really 
powerful book in that it looks at a lot of things within the history and the growth of our country uh, more than 120 years ago. So Chicago of 1870, after the Civil War, Chicago, which is known as basically being a slaughterhouse city, that that was so much of what was going on there was the meatpacking and things like that. It was thought to be a vulgar, rough, and it was nasty city in many regards. But Chicago wanted to escape from that notion. Chicago wanted to find itself in the same conversation with New York or Paris, Ah, Paris, the city that had hosted the World's Fair prior and erected the Eiffel Tower as a way to show the world what a lasting legacy Paris had left on the world. So Chicago wanted to get the World's Fair. They bid for it and ultimately managed to get it away from New York City. So what was Chicago going to do? Sort of the stepsister of New York, if you will. And oh, by the way, of Philadelphia as well. But it had been very quickly growing in population. So as Chicago became the third largest city in the United United States, it wanted to be that kid brother that says, I can do it too. And so they set out to hire the greatest architects that they could find to build a second city within Chicago that would be magnificent that would be spectacular in terms of its largesse and at the same time its ability to showcase the world within Chicago on the banks of Lake Michigan. They went about doing this with an architect who was one of the best that the world has ever known, that he was going to go about building this city in um, uh, in Chicago. And they were going to call it literally the White City, because what it ended up doing is it ended up being a really amazing and from an architectural standpoint, they did things that nobody thought that they would be able to do. And at the same time, they did it so quickly quickly. It took forever for them to get started, but once they hit their stride, they built something that the world couldn't wait to see. Despite the fact that there was economic uncertainty in the country, despite the fact that Chicago wasn't really New York City and was far away and they had labor unrest and they had strikes and they were dealing with all sorts of things, they brought in people like Burnham to design a lot of the architectural thing. They brought in Olmsted, who had designed Central Park in New York City to do all of the design work that had to do with the landscaping, if you will. They brought in these renowned builders to do the work and built this magnificent white city. The main attraction for the fair was the Ferris wheel. George Ferris from Pittsburgh, an engineer, designed it for the fair. Never had one been built before. This one's so large, it was 250 feet up into the air. You could take 2,000 people on a tour of top to bottom in a span of 20 minutes and look out over all of Chicago and all of the World's Fair. It was the creme de la creme. But as part of this story, nearby was the very first serial killer in the United States, a doctor, Dr. H.H. Holmes, who decided that what he wanted to do was prey on the many women who were coming to Chicago to make their mark there as well. Thousands of trains were coming to Chicago literally on a daily basis, and many young women were coming there from all around the country to make their place, that if they could do it in one of the biggest and toughest cities, they could do it anywhere. 
And yet what we find is this doctor starts to take advantage of these young women, that he literally ends up marrying three or four of them, and many of them end up dead. He ended up building a hotel very nearby the World's Fair because he knew that so many people would want to be at the fair that they could stay there. And that is where he, as a doctor, started to do some really evil and nasty things. Now, there are parts of it that are dark. There are parts of the story that you kind of cringe a little bit when you read about how he built this hotel literally with a gas furnace in the basement where he burned the bodies to get rid of them. I mean, he literally was a doctor, and so there was a need for skeletons, and so he literally would kill some of these people and then sell their bones to medical schools to use as uh, as skeletons for anatomy classes and physiology classes. So there's a darkness to it. But at the same time, there is something about the way that they put together this story of the anonymous deaths that were happening, because these were forgotten people. They didn't know where they went. There wasn't the ability to communicate that many of them were typewriters or stenographers or seamstresses or weavers. They had come there to Chicago to find their mark, and he took advantage of it. And he was the very first serial killer in the United States. Eric Larson has an amazing way with words. 447 pages. It's the type of book that once you pick it up and once you get started, if you love history, if you love learning about something that maybe you don't know much about, if you like the ability to learn and at the same time work in what feels like fiction but is really, really a true story. This is a spectacular read. Eric Larson, E-R-I-K-L-A-R-S-O-N, Devil in the White City. I promise you, it's a book that you'll pick up and you'll have a hard time putting down. And you're going to have a hard time forgetting about it, too, because it really is one of those stories that you say it brings out the best in humanity in terms of what we designed and at the worst of humanity in terms of what was operating right around the corner under everyone's nose. Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Rick's reading list suggestion for this week. Hope that you learned something with us. Come back tomorrow, 2 until 6, every Monday through Friday. We get smarter together on KDKA. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 